If you got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open them to Luke chapter 2. We're going to get there in a minute. We've been doing a series. We started uh, just this past month going through the book of Luke. And uh, conveniently, Luke opens up with the whole story of the nativity and Advent season and Christmas. And so if you've been with us in recent weeks, Pastor Rick has been leading us up to the birth of Christ. And last night we saw the arrival of the Messiah. And today we're going to look at what I consider to be the, the concluding chapter of the nativity story. But before we get there, let me ask you a, a question I think might be interesting to think about this morning. When was your happiest moment in life? You know, when you think about that, what was, what was your happiest moment in life? I remember as a kid, my happiest moments were often tied to Christmas Day. You know, the anticipation of waiting for the gifts and the presents. And, and uh, I used to love, we used to go to my grandparents' house up by Green Bay and, you know, just, just the drive and seeing the Christmas lights on the way there and just the excitement building up for the big meals and the presents. And, and so many of my early memories, some of my earliest, happiest memories are tied to, to Christmas. Later in life, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, my happiest moment. It was uh, 13 years ago. I was over in Moscow, Russia, and uh, my father and brother and I had been teaching at a seminary over in Russia for two weeks, and we spent our last week there doing some sightseeing in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Before I left for Russia, I left with the tremendous fear and trepidation of thinking that the girl who was ultimately going to become my wife was going to end up getting engaged to another guy. My, uh, my wife, Kim, here in the front row at the time had been dating another guy, and she and I had dated off and on over the years, but, you know, I'm, I'm the typical guy, 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 you know, you, know, you know, hesitant to commit, and so Kim had finally given up on me, and she started dating this other guy, and I didn't think much of it at first, but I eventually found out that things were getting very serious with them and that he was on the verge of proposing to her, and so literally, like, Three days before I left for our mission trip to Russia, I got together with Kim and I sat her down in a coffee shop and I pleaded my case. And I said, Kim, I'm serious this time. Trust me, I want you in my life. I love you. I'm committed to you. I want to be with you. And she wasn't ready to give me an answer. And so I left for almost a month in Russia, not knowing whether the girl that I was in love with was going to get engaged to another guy. Friends, the happiest moment of my life, without question, was three weeks into our trip in Russia, I found an international calling center. This was back in the days when you couldn't just pull out your cell phone and call anybody around the world. I found an international calling center in the middle of Moscow. And I called Kim. I woke her up. It was like three in the morning. Her time woke her up. And she's crying on the other end of the phone, and she said, you better not be lying to me. <laughs> I broke up with this guy last night, and I'm going to give you another chance, but you better not be lying to me. And I, friends, I tell you what, when she gave me that chance, when she told me that she loved me, when she told me that she was ready to give our relationship a chance again, Man, I was walking on sunshine the rest of that trip through Moscow. It was so funny. My dad and brother, they just wanted to go see all the sites around Moscow. You know, let's go see the Kremlin and St. Basil's Cathedral and all this stuff. And I'm just like, where's the nearest internet cafe? I want to email Kim again, you know. And, and uh, they just thought I was crazy. But I was in, so in love and I was so excited, so happy. You know, when you think about your happiest moments in life, so many of those happiest moments in our lives are tied to intense periods of anticipation and excitement, thinking about what's to come, the hope of what's to come, the hope of the promise 
and the expectation and the, the longing that we're looking to see fulfilled. And I would be willing to bet that if we were to share our stories this morning of those happiest moments in life, many of those would be tied to those periods of great anticipation, great excitement, waiting, longing for something to arrive. Well, today we're going to look at a story in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2, where, where two individuals experienced what I believe was the happiest moment in their lives. In fact, you might even say that this was the original version of that classic Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, you know? Because if you were to ask these two individuals, I guarantee you that they would tell you that it is a wonderful life. And they would point to the day that we're going to talk about today as being the happiest moment in their entire lives, their greatest experience of joy that they ever had in their entire lives. The story we're going to look at today It's an often overlooked chapter in the story of Christmas. It's the story of the day Christmas first came to Jerusalem, roughly six weeks after Jesus was born. A lot of us don't often think about this part of the Christmas story, but it's really an integral part of really everything that we've been talking about in the past few weeks leading up to Christmas. Today we're going to see this story of two faithful God followers who had been waiting for the promised Messiah. And we're going to see their great joy in finding out that Christmas was finally here. What a great story. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to read through this passage together. And as we go through the passage, I'm going to stop along the way and make some observations about what's going on in this passage. I want to make some highlights for you about what Dr. Luke in this passage is explaining to us as he's telling the story of, of Jesus's early days, six weeks after his birth. And after we go through and make some observations, I want to stop and look at some applications from this story. What does this story have to do with us today? What can we take out of the experience of these two individuals and apply to our own lives today, and especially today on Christmas? So here we go. If you got your Bibles, follow along. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21. If you don't have your Bible, the uh, passage will be on the screen behind me, and you can follow along there as well. But let's take a look. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, and if you're not sure what that means, you can talk to Pastor Rick after the service. He'll be out in the foyer. <clears throat> On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Friends, what does all this have to do with the Christmas story? Jesus and Mary and Joseph going to the temple and Luke reveals that they went to perform all of these different ceremonial laws as required in the Old Testament and the law of Moses. Well, I think it's first and foremost important to know this morning that this passage that you see on the screen behind me, this is really the essential meaning of what Christmas is all about. What does this have to do with Christmas? This is absolutely essential to Christmas. And if you don't understand this, you won't understand the entire purpose of why Jesus came into the world. You see, Luke begins this passage this morning talking about Joseph and Mary bringing Jesus to the temple to perform a variety of rituals that were required under Old Testament law. And he cites for us three things. Luke conflates them together in this passage. But he cites for us three rituals that 
Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to experience. The first was his circumcision required for all Jewish men on the eighth day after their birth. Circumcision, which was commanded by God in Genesis chapter 17 as a covenant between God and his people. An outward symbol of the the spiritual circumcision in our heart, the heart surgery that needs to be done in all of our lives to, to purge us of our sin and give us a right relationship with God. God had commanded all Jewish men to go through the process of circumcision as an outward sign, an outward covenant of their devotion and their relationship with him. And so Mary and Joseph, following the law of Moses, had Jesus circumcised on the eighth day. They then take him to the temple where Mary and Joseph had to undergo a purification ritual. This was a sacrificial offering that Mary and Joseph had to perform. You see, 40 days was required after a Jewish woman gave birth. 40-day period of waiting was required for her before she could go back into the temple and enter into the presence of God. The Jewish law said that for 40 days after giving birth that the woman was unclean, and then on the 40th day she should go to the temple and she should perform a sacrifice to make herself clean again. This was part of the Old Testament law that symbolized our separation from a holy God, us and our sinfulness, and God and his holiness. And so Mary and Joseph, faithfully following God's law, they took Jesus to the temple. And Luke tells us that they bought a pair of doves or two young pigeons. This is interesting. This symbolizes the fact that Jesus came from humble origins. He wasn't from a family of wealthy means. We know that Joseph and Mary were humble young adults at this time in their life. And the offering of a pair of doves or two young pigeons was actually a provision in Old Testament law. You see, the sin offering that was required in the Old Testament law was the offering of a lamb. But God had made a provision for people who couldn't afford to buy a lamb that they could sacrifice two pigeons instead. And so we see the humble origins of Jesus as Joseph and Mary perform this purification ritual by sacrificing two young pigeons. Then the blood would have been sprinkled over Mary, symbolizing that she was now clean and could come into the temple and worship God once again. We also see in this passage that Jesus was taken to the temple to be presented to God. It's very interesting in Exodus chapter 13, shortly after God had delivered the children of Israel from their slavery in Egypt and the whole story of the Exodus, God commanded the Israelites that from this day forward, the firstborn son of every Jewish family should be presented to the Lord as an offering, dedicated to the Lord as an offering. And if you remember during the story of the Exodus, the story of the Passover where God, as the final plague over the nation of Egypt, had all the firstborn sons of Egypt killed as a sign of the Pharaoh to let the people of God go. But God said to the Israelites, if you sprinkle blood over your doorposts when the angel comes, he will pass over your door and spare your child. And so God spared the firstborn sons of Israel in that story. And so from that day forward, God had commanded the Jewish people to bring their sons and dedicate their firstborn sons to the Lord. These children belong to me, God says, because I spared them, I passed over them. And so Joseph and Mary brought Jesus faithfully and dedicated him to the Lord at the temple as an offering to God. You know, when you think about these different rituals, these different ceremonies, why does Luke include all of these details in this part of this Christmas story? Well, as I said this morning earlier, this is actually a central, essential aspect of what Christmas is all about, friends. You see, Luke wanted his readers to know for all of history that Jesus 
in every way. Even from infancy, Jesus in every way perfectly fulfilled the Old Testament law required by God. Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of Old Testament law. And because of this, Jesus was the perfect representative for us, for humanity, and thereby became the perfect sacrifice for our sins. You see, Luke wanted us to see that even from the various earliest days of Jesus' life, he had kept the law perfectly. Jesus never sinned. He was the sinless Savior, the sinless sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God. And Luke wanted us to know that even from the very beginning. Jesus never sinned. Yet he came to identify with us, with us sinners. You see, that's the problem we have this Christmas, friends, all of us. God is holy and we're not. We're sinful. Psalm 51.5, David, King David says, Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is holy. He is morally pure. He is perfect. He has no sin in him. And all of us have fallen short of God's holiness because all of us have been born into sin. And all of us commit sin that keeps us separated from God. And so we need a savior. We need a sacrifice. We need a perfect substitute to stand in our place in the presence of God to purify us of our sin. We could never do that on our own. We need a savior. And friends, that is the whole purpose of Christmas. That is why Jesus came into this world. He came to be the perfect representative of humanity. He came to live a perfect sinless life so that when he died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, he could die as the pure, perfect representative of all humanity, taking our sins upon himself, dying in our place so that we could be forgiven and enter into a right relationship with God. Why does Luke include all these ceremonial details, friends? It's because he wants us to know that Jesus was that perfect sacrifice. Even as a six-week-old infant, Jesus had kept every aspect of God's law perfectly, and he would go on and carry on continuing in God's law through his adult life. Jesus didn't come to abolish the Old Testament law, he said. He came to fulfill the law to be the perfect representative for humanity. Paul in Galatians chapter 4, 4 says that Jesus came under the law and he fulfilled the law and ultimately he delivered us from our bondage to the law. Praise the Lord. That's what Christmas is all about, friends. We aren't going to the temple today sacrificing a lamb to ask God for forgiveness for our sins. That's not what we do on Christmas. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad your Christmas celebration isn't about going to a temple and slaughtering a lamb with your family? We don't do that on Christmas. We open gifts because we represent what Christ has done for us by giving gifts to one another because he gave us the greatest gift because he kept the law perfectly so that we didn't have to live under bondage to the law anymore. Isn't that awesome? As we move on in our passage this morning, we see the first of two characters that experience the happiest moment of their lives, the greatest moment of their lives. In fact, this was their very first Christmas morning. It was the day Jesus and his family showed up at the temple in Jerusalem. The first guy we see in our passage this morning is a guy named Simeon. Let's look at what uh, the Bible says about him, Luke chapter 2. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout 
He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Isn't that Can you imagine that? God told him that he wasn't going to die until he saw the Messiah. So like here's Simeon, like he wakes up one morning, he says to his wife, hey, I'm going to go skydiving. Honey, oh, are you sure? That's not really safe. Hey, God said I'm not going to die until the Messiah comes. I mean, that guy's like walking around like Superman, right? I mean, how cool would that be? I'm not, you know, nothing could touch me because I haven't seen the Messiah yet. It had been revealed to him the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What an incredible experience. If you would, go back to that last slide for me as we look at the beginning of Simeon. What do we learn about Simeon here in our passage? The first thing Luke tells us is that Simeon was a righteous and devout man. He was a righteous and devout man. This was a man, friends, who had a right relationship with God. How could Simeon be righteous? No one's righteous apart from Christ. No one's righteous apart from Christ's sacrifice on the cross. But friends, you need to remember in the Old Testament, when God declared a person righteous, it was because this was a person of faith who trusted in the promises of God. They weren't declared righteous because of their works or their good deeds or all the sacrifices they kept. They were declared righteous because they trusted and believed in God by faith. Simeon was one of those Hebrews 11 type believers. Remember Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of fame of faith that goes through and recounts the stories of these great Old Testament heroes of faith. They were saved, Hebrews tells us, by their faith. Not by their works, they were saved by their faith. This was the kind of man Simeon was. He was declared righteous and devout. He wasn't righteous in the sense that God had forgiven his sins through the sacrifice of Christ because that hasn't happened yet. But he was righteous and devout because he trusted God. He believed God's promises and therefore he had a right relationship with God. And Luke tells us that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The word consolation means comfort or hope or deliverance. Simeon was waiting for the deliverance, the hope of Israel. See, we don't know a lot about Simeon. We don't know, was he married? We don't know what he did for his job. We don't know how old he was. Tradition says he was an old guy, but we don't know that for sure. But what we do know is here is this righteous and devout man who believed God's promises, trusted God's promises by faith, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And friends, Israel needed consolation at this time 2,000 years ago. At the turn of the millennium 2,000 years ago, Israel needed hope. Israel needed deliverance. Israel needed consolation. Simeon and many other faithful Jews at this time were waiting for the hope of Israel to come. You see, Israel at this time was under bondage. They were were under the possession of the Roman Empire. Not only that, they were being governed by a wicked puppet king named King Herod 
who was a puppet of the Roman government. Herod had slaughtered tens of thousands of his own people, including his own family members. Israel was under bondage. They were under oppression. They hadn't heard from God in over 400 years since the last prophet spoke. They were waiting, longing for their consolation. And so here we see Simeon, this faithful man of God, waiting for consolation to come. And he knew consolation was coming, friends. He didn't doubt it at all. He knew it was coming because he trusted the promises of God. Simeon was a man of God's word. And as a man of God's word, he knew God's promises in the Old Testament. He knew that there were over 300 promises, prophecies in the Old Testament telling God's people that a Messiah was coming, a Savior was coming, deliverance was coming. And this man who studied the word and loved God and longed for the Messiah to come was waiting because he believed God's promises. And because he believed God's promises, Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit was alive and active in Simeon's life. What a model for us to follow. Here we have this man, Simeon, who was steeped in the word of God. He was obedient to the will of God. He was led by the spirit of God and therefore he was privileged to see the salvation of God. What better model for us to follow this Christmas? when we think about what kind of person do I want to be? As I celebrate Christmas this year, as I move into the new year this year, what kind of person do I want to be? Friends, I tell you what, if you you do what Simeon did, you're going to be in pretty good shape. In fact, I was just thinking about this last night. You know what? Man, when I come to the end of my life, whenever that might be, and I am being eulogized at my funeral, you know what? If somebody stands up here on this platform and says about me, Jason Carlson was a man who was steeped in the word of God. He was obedient to the will of God. He was led by the spirit of God. And he was privileged to see the salvation of God. Friends, if they can say that about me at the end of my life, I'll be pretty pleased. What a great example for us to follow here in Simeon. And then we come to Simeon's prayer. Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation of the Gentiles and for glory for your people Israel. Isn't that awesome? Simeon basically says to the Lord, I can die in peace. You can dismiss your servant. I'm ready to go home. Why? Because his wait is over. Just imagine that, friends. Imagine Simeon's joy. After a lifetime of waiting for the Messiah, watching, longing for the Messiah. Can you imagine Simeon walking through the streets of Jerusalem, walking through the temple courts? Is that him, Lord? Lord, is that child the Messiah? Lord, is that the promised one? And now today, finally, his wait is over. Christmas has finally arrived. Simeon says, I'm ready to go home. And what an incredible image here. Simeon takes the child in his arms. Think about this, friends. Here is a faithful man of God who trusted the promises of God, who knew that God held him in the very palm of his hand, and now Simeon holds God in his arms. Talk about a mind warp. If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. 
Simeon has seen God's salvation. It's interesting the word for salvation that Simeon uses here under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The word for salvation in Greek is the word soteria. But Luke, quoting Simeon, doesn't use the typical word for salvation. He doesn't use soteria. He doesn't even use the word sotir, which means savior. But here Luke and Simeon, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, uses a form of salvation, soterion, which means one who is fitted to save. Sovereign Lord, as you have seen, as you, you as promised, you may now dismiss your servant from my eyes have seen your soterion, one who is fitted to save. My eyes have seen one who is fitted to save. Friends, this is really important for us to understand here this morning. Simeon, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, affirms that Jesus Christ is God's means or instrument of salvation for the world for Jews and for Gentiles. Jesus is God's means of salvation. He is the one God has prepared to save. He is the one who has been fitted to save. As John 3.16 says, for God so loved the whole world, Jew and Gentile, that he gave his only begotten son, the one who was fitted to save. Now I want you to understand something here this morning, friends. This is important for you to understand this Christmas. It's a crucial point to understand at Christmas. God's plan of salvation, friends, isn't multiple choice. God's plan of salvation isn't multiple choice. God didn't give us a bunch of options when it comes to the question of how can I be saved? How can I have a right relationship with God? There's only one way, friends. There's only one who was fitted to save and that is Jesus. Jesus himself in John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts 4, 12, we read that there is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved apart from the name of Jesus. God's plan of salvation isn't multiple choice. There's only one way. Now, some people in our world today say, well, Jason, isn't that, isn't that too exclusive? Isn't that too narrow, Jason? Isn't that too judgmental? A while back, I was driving home from downtown Minneapolis, and I was listening to the radio in my car, and as I was driving past the University of Minnesota, north on 35W, all of a sudden the music stopped in my car, and the announcer came on the radio, and they said, uh, we're going to go live to our helicopter traffic reporter in the sky. And the helicopter traffic reporter in the sky came on the radio and said, hey, if you're driving north out of the Twin Cities right now, there's a major accident up on 35W off County Road E2, and traffic is delayed for miles. And sure enough, as I turned the corner heading north on 35W, all of a sudden I see up ahead of me taillights coming red on and on and on, all as far as the eye could see. And as I'm listening to the radio, the helicopter traffic report in the sky says, if you're on 35W North and you're heading north, you're going to get stuck in this traffic jam. But if you can cut east on Highway 36 and then head north on Snelling Avenue, you can bypass the accident. You can get back on 35 from 694. You can make it safely home and on time. Well, friends, here I am. 
I'm late to get back to church that evening. I'm rushing to try to get home to make it home for dinner. And I'm sitting on 35W in this traffic jam. And all of a sudden, the helicopter traffic reporter in the sky tells me that there is a way that I can go to get safely home and on time. Now, friends, at that point, I got two options. I could sit there in my car that afternoon and I could say to myself, who does she think she is? I mean, how narrow-minded of her. How exclusive, how judgmental claiming to tell me that she knows the best way for me to go to get home. Now, I could do that, right? Or I could do the smart thing and I could say, yeah, she's two miles up in the sky in a helicopter. She sees things that I don't see. She sees the problem up ahead. She knows the way around the dilemma. She knows the way that will get me home safely and on time. And friends, I would have had to be absolutely naive to ignore the direction of the helicopter traffic reporter in the sky. And in the same way, friends, God is our heavenly traffic reporter. And God knows all of the options in our world. He's not surprised about all the different religions out there, but God knows our problem. He knows our problem is sin, and he knows that out of all of the options, there's only one way that's going to lead you safely home into a relationship with him. And so when God tells us the way to go, he does so from his eternal heavenly vantage point that knows about all the options, that knows that there's all these different possibilities, but God says, you know what? There's only one way that's gonna get you home safely. There's only one way that's gonna get you back into a right relationship with me, and it's through my son, Jesus Christ. It's not narrow-minded. It's not exclusive. It's not judgmental. If it's the truth, friends, if it's the truth, then you would be foolish not to follow that guidance. And this leads us to Simeon's prophetic words to Mary in verses 34 to 35. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed him and said to, his, to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. See, friends, what Simeon is getting at here is the fact that there is no name in all the world that grips the hearts of men and women like the name of Jesus. What Simeon is getting at here, friends, is that there is no name in all of human history that is more divisive than the name of Jesus. And it's not because Jesus himself was divisive, but the message of the gospel, the message of Christmas is an inherently divisive message. It's the message that says you are a sinner in need of a savior. And friends, many in our world don't want to hear that message today. They don't want to hear that we need help from somebody else they don't want to hear that we have a fundamental problem, that we are infected with a spiritual disease called sin. And Simeon says that this message, this child in my arms is going to be a stumbling block for many. In fact, he will be a stone, a foundation stone upon which some will stand and rise to life and life to the full. And for others, he is going to be a stumbling block which they will fall over into their condemnation. It's just like John tells us in John 3, 16 through 18. 
John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Jesus then goes on in John 3, 17 through 18 to say, and God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And then Jesus says, but many stand condemned because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. See, friends, God didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. That's why Jesus came that first Christmas, to become the Savior that we need, to provide the forgiveness that we need. But the reality is, as many will find condemnation because of their rejection of the name of Jesus, because of their refusal to submit to the Lordship of Jesus and receive his gift of salvation in their lives. They condemn themselves by stumbling over the message of the gospel. This is what Simeon is warning us about here. Jesus is either the stone on which you'll stand and know life and life to the full, or he'll be a stumbling block which leads to your condemnation. But the choice is yours, friends, and there is no more important question than who do you say I am, which Jesus asked his followers. Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Is he the Messiah, the Prince of Peace? There's no more important question. We come next in our passage to Anna, this incredible woman. Verses 36 through 38. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. What an incredible woman Anna is. She's a woman who served God with total devotion. Luke tells us she was a prophetess, which means she had a special gift of declaring God's word, God's truth. And Luke tells us that Anna was very old. The NIV translates that as being 84 years old. She had lived with her husband for seven years and then she was a widow until she was 84. Other Greek translations actually translate this as saying that she lived for 84 years after she was widowed. So in that case, Anna may have been married at the age of 13, which was the typical age for a Jewish woman to be married. She lived with her husband for seven years and then she was widowed for 84 years, which means that she may have been upwards of 104 years old. Now, there's some old folks out here this morning. How do I know when I'm very old? Well, God's word tells us, friends. If you're 84, you're very old, all right? Okay, any 84-year-olds in here or older? Any, any of you? All right, we don't have any very old people in here yet. So that's good news for all you guys. If you're feeling old this morning, unless you're like Anna, 84 to 104, you're not very old yet. You're just old, okay? But Anna was very old. But what's very interesting in this passage, one thing I'm particularly impressed with in Anna is her commitment to the Lord. Even in the face of having lived a very hard life, as a widow for most of her life, Anna would have known the reality of pain and loss. But we can see from our passage today that Anna never became bitter. She hadn't lost hope over all these years. How is that possible? It's because of what Luke tells us. She was a woman of worship and prayer. She was a woman of worship and prayer. What a great model. 
My dad used to tell me, you know, Jason, when you're going through trials in life, when you're going through hardships in life, you can either become bitter or you can become better. And you know, it's interesting, there's only a one-letter difference between those two words. You know, you can focus on the I. Woe is me. God, why is this happening? God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? You can focus on the I, and many people do, and they become very bitter people. They become angry. They become resentful because they focus on the I. But you have a choice. Instead of focusing on the I, you can focus on the E, which stands for Emmanuel. God is with us. And Anna is one who focused on Emmanuel, God who is with us, and she became a better person. She was a woman of worship. She was a woman of prayer. She was a woman of pure devotion to the Lord. What a great model for us to follow as we think about our own trials in life. And what I love most about this quick glimpse we get of Anna here in our passage, friends, what was her immediate response? Her immediate instinct upon meeting Jesus? Friends, she praises God and then she goes out to tell others the good news that Christmas is here. Isn't that awesome? What an example. You know something, you're never too old to make a kingdom impact. You know some of you old folks in here this morning, right? Let me tell you something, there's no such thing as retiring from our call to live as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Here's Anna, this very old, faithful, devout woman who meets Jesus and the very first thing she does is she says, I gotta go out and I gotta tell others. I gotta tell others that the Messiah has come. What a great example for us to follow. Let me just wrap it up real quickly with three take-homes for us this morning, three points of application. What can we learn from this passage this morning? Three questions for you. Number one, are you waiting for God to show up for you this Christmas? You know, Simeon and Anna, here they were waiting that first Christmas for the Messiah. Some of you might be waiting for God to show up this Christmas. Some of you might be waiting for God to show up in your life in some way. Maybe you've been praying, hoping, longing, asking God for deliverance, asking God for your own consolation in some way. And here you sit this morning and you're still waiting. Let me encourage you something, friends. Don't waste your wait. Don't waste your wait. I'm not talking about your New Year's resolution. You're going to want to waste your wait then. But when it comes to waiting on the Lord, don't waste your wait. Simeon and Anna show us how to wait on the Lord with faithful expectation of ultimate deliverance. These were people who worshiped God. They prayed faithfully. They trusted the promises of God's word. They knew that when we wait on the Lord, as Isaiah 40, 31 tells us, that we will renew our strength. We will rise up on wings like eagles. We will run and not grow weary. We will walk and not be faint. Friends, when you wait on the Lord, you can know that God will never let you down. Never doubt in the dark what God has promised in the light. Jeremiah 29, 11, God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Great promises in Scripture, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. 
in all your ways, acknowledge him, trust in him, and he will make your path straight. Friends, don't waste your wait this Christmas. Are you waiting for God to show up in your life? Trust him. Believe in his promises. He's a faithful God. Second application this morning, question number two, has the light of salvation brightened your heart this Christmas? You know, Simeon in his prayer of praise to the Lord says that Jesus had arrived, a light has shone on the Gentiles and a glory on Israel. Friends, have you allowed the light of Christmas to brighten your heart? Have you, like Simeon, embraced Jesus as your Savior, as your Messiah? And if not, why not? And if not, why not today? What better day than Christmas to receive the ultimate gift that God wants to give you? Salvation and forgiveness and a new life, a new relationship. It's what you were made for. It's what you were created for. What are you waiting for? Friends, there is no guarantee that tomorrow is going to come for you. I was just watching on Friday night, 2020 had a special about all the celebrities that had died in the past year. Anybody you guys see that? You know what struck me was how many of those celebrities one day were just fine, the next day, boom, they're gone. Prince, Florence Henderson from the Brady Bunch, Alan Thicke from Growing Pains just this past week. These were people living regular, normal lives, nothing wrong as far as they knew, and the next day, boom, God called them home. Tomorrow is not guaranteed for any one of us, friends. But the good news is, is if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he will come in, he will cleanse us of our sin, he will give us new life, he will give us the assurance of our salvation. John 1.12 says that to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Friends, what a promise, what a gift, what an offering for you to receive from the Lord this Christmas. If you haven't embraced Christ, I encourage you, don't let today go by without doing that. It's the greatest Christmas gift you'll ever receive. This leads me to application number three this morning. Does the hope of Christmas inspire you to share the good news with others? You know, like Anna who met Jesus, the first thing she did, she wanted to go and tell others about him. You know, a couple weeks ago, I took my family for uh, Kim and I's 13th anniversary. We went to, uh, KTIS was sponsoring this Christmas concert with Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith. And if you listen to KTIS for like the last two months, they've been promoting this concert. And and in, in their advertisement for the concert, they kept saying, it's the gift that keeps on giving. And I thought, wow, the gift that keeps on giving. Well, I'm gonna take my family, you know, give them the gift that keeps. Friends, we went to the concert, and I'll tell you what, it was a great concert, but... Keep on giving? I don't know. How, I mean, what, what do they, how do they figure that, right? I mean, we had a good time, you know, a couple hours. Everybody talks about the gift that keeps on giving. Friends, there's only one gift that keeps on giving, and that's the gift that God gave us in Jesus Christ. And it is the gift that keeps on giving because when you know Jesus and when he transforms your life and he touches your heart, there's nothing else you want to do but go and tell others about it. That's why Jesus is the ultimate gift, because it is the gift that keeps on giving. Two weeks ago, our Adult Bible Fellowship group and our families, we went over to Parmley, and we were singing Christmas carols down the hall, and one of the carols we were singing was, Go Tell It on the Mountains. You know, what a great song. Go tell it on the mountains, over the hills and everywhere, right? And I started thinking to myself, as we're walking through the hall singing this song, I started thinking to myself, 
That's what it's all about. How do we evangelize? You guys want a simple, effective evangelism strategy? Go tell it on the mountains, over the hills, everywhere. Tell them Jesus has been born. It's the greatest message the world has ever heard, friends. And we can live our lives every day like Christmas. Don't just go tell it on the mountains today. Go tell it on the mountains tomorrow when you go to work. Go tell it on the mountains tomorrow or next week when you go back to school. Go tell it on the mountains, over the hills, everywhere, in the coffee shops, in the mall, at your workplace. Go tell it on the mountains because it's the news the world needs to hear. Let me close in a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the promise of new life in this incredible gift you gave us that first Christmas. Thank you for the example that we see here in Simeon and Anna and the the things that we can learn from their lives, the examples that we can learn from in their lives, Lord, as they faithfully loved you and served you and waited for you and then ultimately saw the arrival of that first Christmas 2,000 years ago. God, may we long for you and wait for you with that same expectation with that same hope, with that same faith. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who hasn't yet embraced you as Simeon did, as their Messiah, as their Lord and Savior, that they might do that even today. What a day, a Christmas day, to embrace the gift of God, the gift of eternal life. It's as simple as just saying a quiet prayer in your own heart. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I want to receive the gift of salvation you bought and paid for when you sent your son into this world to die on the cross for my sins. Thank you, Jesus, for that gift. I want to make it mine today. And God, for the rest of us here this morning, I pray like Anna that our instinct might be to leave this morning and to remember that Christmas is all about the good news of Jesus Christ and that we have the privilege of going out and sharing that news with everybody in our lives. There's no greater news to share than the message of Christmas. And so, Lord, may we faithfully carry that message with us as we leave today. And may we take it with us into 2017. May it be on the tip of our tongue every day of our lives that Jesus Christ has been born. The Messiah has come. Life is here. Hope is here. And God wants to give you a gift. Thank you, Lord, for this Christmas. In your name we pray. Amen.